Okay, good evening everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of the Development Studies Institute here at the school. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school if you've come from outside and to tonight's panel discussion on the topic of Do No Harm, international support for state building in fragile situations. Uh, some of you will know that the title of tonight's panel discussion comes from a book with the same title that was published in January of this year by the OECD. Uh, luckily, I was able to read the book last week, and I think it's, a, it's an outstanding contribution to debates on aid and on state building. Particularly, I think it bodes very well for tonight that it refuses the sorts of simplicities that seem to be characterizing the aid debate these days. Uh, it neither bows down before the aid community, nor does it take easy shots at that community. Uh, one of its central messages is that the donor community can very easily and perhaps inadvertently undermine state building processes in situations of fragility and of conflict. But another message is that that pitfall can be avoided if donors pay heed to a philosophy of do no harm, uh, some of the practical consequences of which are, are worked out in the book and doubtless they'll be set before us tonight. So the plan is to have three brief presentations by our panelists, Dr. Funmi Olonisakin, uh, Ambassador John Lemoy and Professor James Putzel. And I'll make sure you know who is who in a second. Uh, after that, we'll move directly to questions and answers. And if you could just turn off your phones and charges now, that would be very helpful. Rather than me getting up and down to introduce people one by one, I'm going to take a few minutes now to introduce each of them. Uh, our first speaker at the end is Ambassador John Lemoy, who comes from Norway. He's held senior positions, first of all, with the Norwegian Agency for Development Cooperation, NORAD, from 1989 to 1996, first as the head of the East African Division and later as Deputy Director and Director of the Africa Department. Uh, from 1996 to 2000, John served as the Ambassador of Norway to Zambia, and whilst he was there, he managed bilateral development programs on a new and more decentralized basis. John returned to NORAD in 2001 as Director of the Southern Africa Department before joining Norway's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 2004 as Deputy Director General of the Department for Africa, Asia, Latin America and the Middle East, which means, I think, in other words, that you were basically the boss of Norway's bilateral assistance program. Uh, during that period, John initiated the Oil for Development program and carried out a review of multi-donor trust funds in post-conflict countries in conjunction with the World Bank. Uh, from 2007 until earlier this year, I think, uh, John was ambassador of Norway to Tanzania. In that capacity, he helped to manage one of Norway's largest bilateral aid programs, one that has a particular focus on translating global policy initiatives such as climate change, UN reform, and the Partnership for Reduced Maternal and Child Mortality into, into country-level activities. Uh, most recently, I think last month, uh, Ambassador Lemoy was appointed Director of the Development Cooperation Directorate of the OECD. Uh, so in that job, he has responsibilities in particular for shaping policies that can promote sustainable development in support of the Millennium Development Goals. 
Speaking third, but directly to my left, is Dr. Funmi Olonisakin, who has been the director of the Conflict Security and Development Group at King's College London since 2003. Uh, prior to that, Funmi worked at the United Nations Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict as the advisor on Africa. She's held research and visiting positions at the University of Lagos and the Institute of Strategic Studies at the University of Pretoria. Funmi is a member of the International Advisory Board of the Geneva Center for Democratic Control of the Armed Forces and of the Advisory Board of the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs Training for Peace. Uh, she's also a trustee of the Center for Democracy, uh, Democracy and Development uh, in the UK and Nigeria, which she co-founded. I believe that uh, Funmi's most recent book from 2007 uh, is entitled Peacekeeping in Sierra Leone, but it's a book that adds to uh, a large number of previous monographs and of articles on the topic of peace building, particularly in Africa and particularly with reference to Liberia. Finally, in the middle, who's going to speak second uh, is Professor James Putzel, a friend and colleague of mine here in the Development Studies Institute at the LSE, and I would say indeed the main shaper of that institute, Destin, over its 20-year history. Academically, James is perhaps best known still for his book from 1992, A Captive Land, The Politics of Agrarian Reform in the Philippines. But he is, of course, the author of a very large number of important books and papers that really range across development studies. Amongst James's recent work, there are articles on the politics of the financial crisis and work on nationalism and the comparative politics of development in Southeast and East Asia. He's also been writing on democratic transitions, developmental states, and the role of foreign aid and NGOs in development. As many of you will know, since 2000, James has also been directing the DFID-funded uh, Crisis States Research Center here at the school. And many of the insights, I think, from that research program um, find their way into this book, the new OECD book, Do No Harm, which we're here tonight to discuss. Uh, that's no surprise, because James Putzel is the principal author of that volume. So it's just as well that he's here. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Ambassador Lemoy to get us going. How do I put on this one? It is, it is already on, so I just need to. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, one should perhaps feel slightly awed by uh, being here in the presence of, uh, of many, many learned people. Um, I'm a pure practitioner, not, uh, I left academia some well, 30 years ago, I think it was. Um, about uh, two weeks ago, I was, no, one week ago, I was in London at a seminar where we reflected on the past and future of aid. And one of the questions we asked ourselves was, 
what has been the biggest game changer in international development cooperation over the past decade. And there was a fair amount of agreement that the biggest game changer had been uh, fragility and conflict, sort of the, the, the focus of that as an area of, uh, of uh, development. Uh, that's been so because an increasing share of development assistance goes to, con to conflict and fragile countries. Roughly a third of the 120 billion uh, US dollars per year that uh, the OECD members uh, give in official development assistance. So that's that's one main reason. The other one is that uh, if we look at uh, the 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 main target of uh, our development cooperation, realizing the Millennium Development Goals, we clearly see that the the laggers behind our countries in conflict are fragile states. So without attacking poverty reduction in uh, fragile state, there's no way we are going as uh, as a global community to solve the, uh, the poverty problems and the other uh, realizing the, the MDGs. <coughs> uh, the, for the development community, uh, that game changer has been challenging in different ways. Uh, you could say uh, in, a, in an economic institution, perhaps one could say that we, we used to be a small family-owned company. <laughs> the development community. Um, by when when we started seriously working on aid to conflict states, we the game changed fundamentally because we had to interact with in a very different way with other policy communities. And you could, if we remained in the economic uh, terminology, you could say that we we became one of the bigger shareholders in a big corporation but where uh, defense was another major shareholder and where, uh, where foreign affairs was another major shareholder. And, and that whole sort of transition from being running one's own shop to uh, interacting with a large number of, of other actors uh, to, uh, to reach common objectives have been enormously challenging for, for, the, uh, for the development community. Uh, but it's also been conceptually challenging because we we are sort of we used to think that we uh, we were we should work in and we have developed our policies and our approaches in a context where there was a state that we could work with, sort of a reasonably functioning state that we could work with, and we had developed uh, over time good principles for through through Roman Paris declarations for how we should work with, uh, with these countries. Uh, so, uh, aid, so fragility has been a game changer. Uh, I think that's uh, for international development cooperation. I think the second major message I'd like to leave with you is that the, the importance of dollars in fragile situations. I mean, in many countries in fragility, we matter. We matter because uh, uh, 
domestic revenue generation and domestic revenue collection is uh, limited so that uh, international financing is important for both for the functioning of the, the financing of the government but also for the financing of many other parts of, uh, of society. So as a consequence of that, our choices and sort of in, in development cooperation, the big choices that we make, because apart from which countries we work in, um, sort of are who do we work with, what do we support, and how do we do it? Sort of what instruments and mechanisms do we use in order to, uh, in order to, uh, uh, to deliver, deliver development assistance? And uh, since we are so important, our choices here matters, and they matter a lot. And in the vocabulary of the book, uh, we have a when we have a we are there because we think we have an enormous capacity to do good. But of course, as a consequence of us mattering that much, we also have a capacity to do harm. Um, the the challenge of being a development actor in a situation where the state is extremely weak and where one is, um, I, I, I sometimes semi-jokingly when uh, discussing with a colleague about Sudan, uh, sort of where, where if, you, if you try to put the state building process in southern Sudan, uh, somewhere on the Nordic uh, state building axis, where would we be? And I, I jokingly said probably somewhere in between the, the between the ninth and the twelfth century, rough, <laughs> rough, roughly in terms of where where we were. But but we, in we are in in situations where building the state is uh, an important uh, uh, we call it business because that's a that's a wrong word, uh, and we need to realize that we're important, but we cannot build states. I mean, only the people in the country can build states. Uh, and that duality which is there, the sort of the, the balancing of the, on the one hand, the obvious fact that states can only be built from within uh, and must get its legitimacy from, from its people whether that is through elections or through other mechanisms, that's another question. Uh, and on the other hand, the heavy external rely reliance on external financing, that's the, the, the sort of managerial dilemma that uh, donors in uh, fragile states will face all the time. And there's no, no quick solutions, no quick answers. Uh, we will face a number of trade-offs, dilemmas, when we want to, want to get results, uh, whether that's in the form of more children in schools or uh, more uh, people getting health care or uh, whatever. Uh, on the one hand, we can do it the quick way, we can get an international NGO, we can get uh, a UN agency, or we can get a bilateral agency to establish a project implementation unit, start building schools, 
start uh, constructing health clinics, starts hiring health workers, deliver good services to the people, good and very important services to the people quickly. Uh, but of course, if the services that are delivered to the people uh, in a community in Pakistan or southern Sudan all bear the brand of, uh, of Save the Children or UNICEF and not of the government of southern Sudan, then we are not contributing to the, uh, to the legitimacy of the government of southern Sudan. Uh, but we also know that if we want to do this through the government of southern Sudan, then it will take much longer time. And to, I think my, th my basic philosophy is that there's no sort of given answer to how you, how you make that trade-off. It's a trade-off that you have to, to make on the basis of a, a, a contextual understanding of the situation you're in and aware of both sides, both the need to produce results and the, the need to, uh, to, build, uh, to build a long-term sustainable functioning, uh, functioning government. Uh, we, have, uh, we face even more challenging uh, questions when you co we come to um, conduct of elections. What's the right time for an election? What's the, uh, should we do it quickly? Uh, is there a risk that an election would destabilize? Uh, do you have a political context where uh, that could lead to lasting marginalization of important groups? Again, no fixed answers. Need to understand the and un, un, understand the context. Uh, how do you deal with corruption? You will frequently be facing a situation where uh, government is exposed to the, the corruption risk is high if you work through the government. How do you balance that with the desire to strengthen the government, give legitimacy to the government by letting them own the results of, uh, of, the, uh, of the efforts? Uh, and I, there is only, we know only one way of solving these dilemmas, and that's by solid understanding of both the developmental and the political context of the countries that, you, that, we, that we work in, acknowledging that there are these trade-offs and these dilemmas, and then uh, making as good choices as we can within these. And that brings me to my, my last point, and that's sort of, where's OECD in this? We've no military power. We've no money, <laughs> as, 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 as OECD, as OECD countries, we have a lot of money. Um, what uh, we try to provide and have provided in this case, you could say, is a, a space for reflection, a space for discussion, a space where practitioners can meet, discuss experiences, uh, reflect on those experiences, get stimulated intellectually by outsiders uh, with uh, deep knowledge of political processes, for example, uh, on the basis of uh, uh, that discourse, we try to develop policies, 
how rules, not, not regulations, not laws, uh, but uh, standards that we encourage our member countries to follow. Um, and I think uh, we have some of those, uh, some of those uh, here re related to, uh, we do that in a number of different areas, but we, we certainly do that in, the, in this area as well. Um, and then uh, we also try to encourage ourselves and the countries to monitor, to follow, to see, are these guidelines useful? Are these policies useful? Are they adhered to? Uh, if they're not, what do we need to do in order to make countries uh, uh, more receptive to the wisdom that we have uh, that we have uh, jointly uh, that we have jointly uh, that we have jointly produced? So uh, we are important. Uh, we face serious dilemmas. Uh, we can only deal with these dilemmas by deep understanding of the context that we work in. We recognize that uh, our business uh, in doing aid in uh, fragile countries and in conflict and post-conflict situations is a deeply political exercise. Uh, and we recognize that uh, uh, we face continuous trade-offs between quick wins uh, and lasting long-term solutions. Thank you. Thank you, John. We're going to move straight on now to James Putzel. Okay, can, can everyone hear me? Yes? I know some people were struggling in the back, so I try to speak closer to the microphone. I, I'm, I'm happy you all came, especially on election day. You'll notice I have um, a tie that doesn't reveal what my preferences are. Um, but um, I'm glad you came while you hang around and wait for LSE election night to begin. Um, um, I, um, I want to start by, by first of all, um, commending the OECD. Um, I, I found it a very interesting experience to work with them and the, the work around the project Do No Harm um, and uh, looking at international engagement with, and support for state building was a, was a collaborative effort that we, we undertook with a team of researchers from the LSE and from PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and it involved um, not only looking at the macro picture, but trying to, this report actually distills the results of six country case studies. Um, and um, I, my colleagues, particularly Brendan Witte, Daniel Esser, uh, Jonathan DeJohn, made contributions as well to the research that went, went, went into this. Um, I did find that the OECD is indeed a place of reflection, and there's a lot of rigorous work being um, commissioned out of the OECD to inform that reflection and that discussion, and so it, it's been a, a, a privilege to be a part of it. I think the move rec in recent years of the international community to, to recognize a, a category of countries as fragile, uh, what John called being a game changer, was in fact an extremely important one. Even if the, the definitions in the international development community of what fragility is are still problematic, I think. 
but it represented a move whereby development assistance could be channeled to countries that really need it, need it perhaps more desperately than anyone else, any other countries. And it was a step away from channeling aid almost exclusively to good performers. This is what made sub-Saharan Africa suffer so much during the 1990s, in fact. So that move, I think, has been a strategic one and a very important one. The second thing is I think is a very, I consider a very important shift forward. The OECD publishes a study that examines the importance of state building. This, too, wouldn't have happened some years ago. And also that looks at how donors can do harm to the processes of state building and how aid can do harm. So that discourse, adopting that examination, that reflection inside of OECD, I consider a very important step forward. And we pay homage in this book to the work of Mary Anderson, who undertook important work on conflict, looking at exactly the principle of do no harm. And it's a positive thing that this is making headway in the international development community. For far too long, there's been little recognition that many of the countries in the developing world, in fact, have right at the center of their agenda state formation, state building. And John alluded to this. There was once a kind of thought that you could carry out aid programs with a well-functioning state, et cetera. In many places, in fact, this characterizes the political system. So there's no solid agreement on who is and who is not a citizen. There's little internal economic integration in these places, in the territories that are legally recognized under the authority of states. There's sometimes less than a monopoly of the means of violence and less than full protection of a population's security. There's no dominant position for the state's rules and laws over contending rules and laws in the territory. And little capacity to raise revenue or to stop non-state brokers from doing so instead of a public authority. So in those places, state building is really very much on the agenda. In the book, we cover a broad range of interventions by OECD countries. And I can't attempt to go through all of that now. The book attempts to identify both good and bad practice of donors, both moves forward and areas where there are really problems. And what I want to do is highlight a little bit the areas where I think some of the worst harm can be done, and perhaps in some cases still is being done, to provoke some discussion on the panel, some debate in the room as well. And that's what we like to do at the LSE. So let me mention briefly four areas. First of all, the question of security. Despite the rapprochement that John talked about, in other words, where development agencies now have to work with ministries of defense and departments of foreign affairs, there's still a very big problem. And that's that one of the big interventions of OECD countries in the developing world is through military assistance and military interventions, in fact, where if you look at the critical mass of money being spent 
by OECD countries. It probably comes down on military intervention side. And these largely escape serious review by anybody um, in the international system at the moment. Uh, it's certainly beyond the remit of the OECD. And it rests, really, if it rests anywhere, only with the UN Security Council. And unfortunately, the, the permanent members who have the right to veto in the UN Security Council are also the five biggest arms uh, traders uh, in the international system. So there is a, there's a very important problem here about doing harm. Military assistance programs are delivered in very often in uncoordinated fashions by each of the richest countries. Um, very often the same country receiving assistance with different doctrines, um, promoting different doctrines, promoting different types of equipment. Um, and in, in many senses, this assistance is dysfunctional. This is dysfunctional in any kind of developing country, but in a fragile state where perhaps there is not a functioning security force. This be can become extremely debilitating and very dangerous indeed. The other, of course, is military intervention. And when we look writ large at the problem of fragility, then uh, uh, there, there can be at times um, what I would assess uh, uh, a source of, of great harm, uh, like, an inter like, like an intervention like that which took place in Iraq, because that actually undid the state in a way that is, is going to have an, a consequence for, for generations. And we, we, we could debate that. But I think the, this security dimension is one of, the, one of the most dire places where harm can be done. And so far, there's not really any very good antidote to it. So I don't think we've made enough progress um, around that aspect of, of and potential of doing harm. Uh, the, second, the second area um, has to do with the capacity of of, of state managers to manage their public finances. This is a very contentious area. Of course, it's one that where I think there is a lot more um, um, uh, positive and negative experience contending within the international um, development aid community. But the problems of delivering aid off budget uh, and, and establishing organizations that are parallel to the state uh, create a big danger of um, molding, forming what we, we call in the report a dual public sector. In other words, channeling a lot of resources in order to get the quick results that John talked about um, into project in implementation units and, and the like, uh, create new sites of patronage, uh, new sites of decision making uh, that are often entirely removed from the public authority. And of course, this also can preempt the consolidation of state organizations that are really trying trying to consolidate. But it, it, is a big, it is a big problem. I wouldn't call it an unsolvable dilemma. We have some positive experience uh, that we document in the book that, that tries to, 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 to counteract this, this tendency. But, um, and we can talk about the examples during the discussion, if you're interested, of, of where that's going. Um, but, um, and, and, and the, the second dimension of the doing harm in, in, in terms of the public finances uh, in, in, in fragile states is still, I think, a, a, a really big problem of donors reporting 
their aid flows to those who are trying to manage public finances in every country that we studied this this was still a very very major problem and despite it being a focus of attention by the Paris Declaration etc the the information that donors themselves give to to the managers of public finance financial systems in in the recipient countries is still very very poor so I think that one of the biggest antidotes as it were that's been that's been tried to combat the tendencies of developing a dual public sector have been the experiences with setting up dual managed funds where where government officials co-manage foreign aid funds with the with the donor community we we cite the example the Afghanistan trust fund in the book and a number of researchers including our follow-up research ourselves show has shown that that has created capacity and yet still was able to ensure that the money was spent the way it was intended to be to be spent and it with problems of corruption that we we see still rampant in the in the Afghan state something like that is necessary there we don't treat it in the book but there's another interesting example in Liberia the GMAP fund in that regard so there's been progress made in this regard but there's still a huge percentage of the foreign aid going into the into all of the developing countries but even into these states even as budget support is increasing and in its way still the largest percent of aid in all the countries we studied is going into projects okay let me very quickly mention just two other points to conclude yeah John alluded to the problematic decisions that often have to be made in relationship to elections and I think here again there is a real potential for doing harm there's still pretty much a knee-jerk reaction in the wake of a conflict that one has to move or the donor community and the contending parties have to move to an electoral competition very quickly and it's true that there there are great challenges in those in those situations in terms of legitimizing finding some way to legitimate a new group within power after conflict so pressures are often very very deep to move towards some sort of electoral exercise but in the process of doing that it's become almost a mantra and a very problematic one for a number of reasons which we can debate in the discussion more deeply but often with little understanding what is the reigning political settlement in a place you know really what are the contending forces very little understanding of the demographics of conflict or politics or little recognition of how elections might actually provoke violence and if we look at a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo I think there are still very serious problems in that regard this this move can can do harm and I and I would say that there there has been a clearer appreciation of this or an increasing appreciation of this in a positive example has been the international donors communities tolerance for instance of something less than open political competition in Rwanda we talk about this in the book while at the same time pushing for greater greater a greater role greater freedom in in the media and the press so there's a way donors I think doing no harm 
last point I want to make is another point where I think there's not enough attention, and that's the risk of doing harm by the impact of aid or the lack of aid being channeled to productive sectors in fragile states. I mentioned in the beginning one of the problems of state formation is that there's a lack of internal economic integration. There's been a secular decline in international aid to the productive sectors, agriculture, manufacturing, even economic infrastructure over the last two decades. And while there's some shift in that at the present time, it's not a qualitative shift. So the strategies being promoted by donors still have to do with limiting state activity to creating good environments for business investments in these countries, but very often the state has to do much more. How it can do much more when it's a weak state, this is a question that we discuss a little bit in the book, and I'd be very happy that we debate this in the discussion tonight. But certainly states need to play a role in creating the kind of markets that donors would like to see and in promoting the creation of productive capacity in these economies. There's some difference of experience discussed in the report in relationship to this between the country cases that we studied. There's many areas of good practice discussed in the report and other troubling areas that I haven't had time to mention, but we could bring them up in the discussion like around technical assistance or assistance to civil society. There's a mixed record in terms of what donors have done in relationship to creating taxation capacity in these states, and hopefully we can get on to some of that. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. So our third speaker is Funmi Lonisakin. Straight over to you. Thank you very much. I think my task is relatively easy, having already listened to the two speakers before me. This is one of the first times that I've picked up a publication on donor assistance, and I've not had major, major challenges, major problems with it. I think it has something to do with James' contribution to this volume because I think it's balanced, and you're right. It's not pandering to donors. So it makes all of the right points about the gaps and the different ways in which donors can do harm. So what I want to do is to underscore four main areas and maybe even go further in terms of putting some of those challenges on the table and the manifestations of those challenges in different fragile environments, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. The first point I want to make is that in looking at those different areas where donors can do harm, in the book you refer to the challenge, the strategic dilemma. And I think there's a way that the publication, the book covers so many factors, and in a sense, without quite saying it, you don't put any weight, no weight is put on any one factor as the major challenging factor. So I think that's the first point I want to make. 
factor there. And what I want to do is to try to rank them. And if I were to rank them, I would say that the strategic dilemma is perhaps the most problematic issue here. In that just at a moment's notice, um, the strategic interests of donors overrides local priorities very rapidly because something has shifted in the international environment uh, and of late, in the, in the last decade at least, uh, the, the issue of counter-terrorism is what t then tends to take priority. And in the process, of, uh, emphasizes uh, the military uh, so much more uh, than the, uh, you know, as a priority over some of the day-to-day -day, uh, much needed priority areas in the local setting, like the issue of children uh, that, um, you know, we talked, we, we heard earlier. So it's how quickly donors abandon uh, the local environment and the priorities of ordinary people for, of course, their own greater goal, uh, which very often might not have anything to do uh, with the realities of the people uh, in those fragile contexts. I think it's important uh, to, to, to underscore this. And of all the three major activities that we find in that terrain, in the, in the fragile uh, terrain, I would say that development will be at the bottom, whereas um, military security issues, military and defense and foreign affairs, of course, uh, will begin to, of, to have overriding priorities in this environment. But, but I, I think moving on rapidly, the second way in which I think harm can be done, uh, whether uh, knowingly or unknowingly in this environment, is that donors find it extremely difficult to move away from the state or from state actors, even when we know that those governing those states are dubious, discredited uh, personalities. And sometimes they're the best on offer. There was a time that Charles Taylor was the best thing on offer in Liberia, and the international community connived. It's not just donors. Even the regional uh, organization, ECOWAS in West Africa, uh, was fatigued by peacekeeping, and very quickly, Taylor was sanctioned. And this is how Taylor came to power in 1997 in Liberia. And within two years, we were back uh, to the drawing board. We had to be resolving another war, had to be intervening in another war uh, in the country. But, but let me say a couple of things about this, what I, what I refer to as placing too much emphasis on state actors. We spend so much time seeking legitimacy of new actors, uh, the, the new kids on, on the block. And you were talking about Sudan. And actually, in the case of South Sudan, they, they seem to be so committed to, to that environment. And I'm talking about the government of South Sudan here. But they're the first to tell you that, look, we have neglected two things. We have neglected education and agriculture at the expense of security, because we have to be thinking uh, this, this is our biggest priority at the moment. Uh, and I think, um, even if not in the case of, uh, uh, of South Sudan, there are very many cases where donors can at least apply that leverage to shift the thinking uh, of, of, those, of, of those in power. And invariably, you find that state-society relations begin to worsen because donors pay, they pander so much to, to, this, uh, to these new actors, the leaders on the scene, uh, in the name of peace. We're hoping for some sort of peace. So we think that if we cater more to them and give them more legitimacy, uh, things will be right uh, in due course. But I want to argue that, indeed, 
what is needed is that greater legitimacy should be given to the people uh, in the eye of their leaders. Because what you find time and time again in the fragile and conflict-affected context is that the leaders in that environment spend more time accounting to their foreign partners than they do accounting to their people. So securing, ensuring their accountability to their people, I think, will be one of the best ways. And what, what could donors do uh, in this regard? Is by, and I think one of the easiest ways would be to begin to legitimize alternative sources of power. Of course, not without knowing who the actors are. And I think th th this publication makes uh, a very valid point about even when you're dealing with civil society actors, you need to know the structure of that society, you, know, you need to know who the different actors are in that society, because we know that they're donor darlings, whether within civil society uh, or, or government. Uh, why is this the case if I use the, 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 why is it important to legitimize or to begin to support the legitimacy of the people in the eye of their leaders? Is that if I use the, if I take the African continent as an example, there is no place, there is no war that has occurred on the continent of Africa in post-independent years, post-independent years, which has been as a result of a conversation between the people and the rulers. Everything has been based on elite interest and elite conflict. And when we resolve the conflicts, it is the elite we bring together because they have spent so much time terrorizing the population. We are yet to have a dialogue that is between the people and the rulers. And that tells me actually that we'll probably still have more, more armed conflicts up front. We don't, we hope not. So this is why I think that it's important to, to stop, to, to begin to think from the bottom up. What really makes the people feel secure in that environment will be that they begin to, to be seen as important in the eyes of their leaders. And in many cases, it is not so. The third point I want to make, and that, that's my penultimate point, will speak to state capacity. I, I want to argue that the very weak capacity that we acknowledge in fragile environment, that little existing capacity in very many cases exists in spite of the, uh, in spite of the governments. It exists because of the people, and it exists in spite of the governments. Now, how, what do I mean? One and I will speak to security very quickly. Security is an area where we know, and I, I want to underscore the point that has been made in, in this book, uh, and I think the point was made earlier on about the fact that there is no legitimacy uh, or there, there is no monopoly over the means of violence. In fact, in many of the places, there's, been, there's never been monopoly over the means of violence, and, and that point is, is well made. So what do you get? You find two parallel systems in which the population has learned to live without the center, because nothing, apart from the systems, the security and justice systems that cater to the elite, uh, the ruling elite and their cronies, the ordinary people do not feel the practical, uh, practically, they don't, feel, uh, they don't feel that there's any security system that caters to them. So you see alternative security and justice system that people retreat to on the margins of the state. In the area of economy, and those are two things, security and economy that I want to return to. If you take different fragile environments in Africa, for example, the strongest, the heartbeat of the economy is the informal economy. 
And yet, we have not gotten right. A few countries are taking steps, and I think Kenya is an example, which uses the PIN system uh, to begin to identify its citizens, and you end up paying taxes one way or the other. So you have millions of Africans. In Nigeria, you have at least half of the population, which, you know, that doesn't even take, pay any taxes at all. We don't know where they are because they're not recorded. Much, you know, much happens that is not recorded. And yet, we reward many of these states by providing budget support to them. <coughs> when taxes could be generated locally, if the, the social contract existed the way it should, but what we do is we reward them by providing budget support. So we, we, we are reinforcing the status quo uh, in a sense. Um, and, and I hope we can come to that at some point later to talk about the different ways uh, in which this occurs. But I, I want to make uh, a last point about donor dependency, which is one of the many ways in which uh, harm can be done. What we see is governments that have become dependent uh, on, on their donor partners. And you find some nice, quiet, model citizens. Societies are not, you know, the governments are not too fragile. It's only in the last decade that we have become more critical uh, of a country like Uganda. Uh, we're hardly ever as critical of Tanzania. But when you look at those two countries and you look at uh, their budgets and you see what percentage of the budget actually uh, has to do, uh, comes from donor funding, then you begin to wonder. Uh, if you compare that to a country like Kenya, which we cannot say is not fragile, uh, we have seen what's happened in Kenya in, in the last uh, uh, two years or so. So to a certain extent, you see pockets of fragility in Kenya, but Kenya can boast of the fact that it generates about 90, more than 90% of its uh, budget internally. Uh, and these are the ways in which, these are the telltale signs of which states uh, might remain fragile for a long time and which might begin to uh, inch towards some kind of uh, uh, stability in the end. But I, I think there is a way, there's a form of donor behavior uh, that rewards certain uh, darlings in civil society and therefore maintains a particular kind of behavior and do, does not really encourage those particular actors to seek alternative ways of strengthening their economies or at least examining the realities of the environment. And we might want to speak uh, to, to some of these. Lastly, I want to close on the issue of timing, um, whether it's timing uh, for elections, but I think timing of support, the fact that we do not think, we cannot think long term. And I think that is the reality of how uh, donor funding is structured most of the time in fragile environments. Of course, we need many, many years before we can begin to realize the sort of stability that is needed in those environments. But uh, of course, pressures are we, the elections in the UK today, so we know what it's like for, uh, for resources, uh, for policies to suddenly change after four or five years, after four years, at least in, in this part of the world. And therefore, those are the imperatives that drive the responses uh, to, to, to fragile context. So you might find a situation where uh, a well-meaning initiative begins and very rapidly it has to wrap up. But we also know that in peacekeeping, for example, that because we think in short term, the mandate is short, but you need security in that country. No sooner had you, start, you started talking about constitution making and about dialogue and reconciliation, you're told the mission has to wind down. Uh, we have to draw down and therefore there's, there's, a, there's pressure to act very quickly uh, and to tick or check the boxes without actually uh, 
seeing the impact of the work or at least thinking so, uh, long term about the work on the ground. Uh, and if I may make one very, very last point before I close, it's the competition, the sense of competition that's, that tends to occur uh, among donors in different environments. You, you looked at the Congo, uh, for example. And sometimes where, does, where do you place the UK, which has its own you know, uh, initiative in the Congo, uh, which is progressing at least in the area of uh, security and justice? Uh, where do you place France? What, where do you place Belgium? Where do you place members of the European Union uh, who have their own, indi their own individual initiatives and are members of the EU, which is also present on the ground, and also are members of the OECD? Uh, these are some of the dilemmas. I'm not sure I have any answers to them. I'm just trying to, uh, to raise a few points uh, to get the discussion going. And I'll stop on that note. Thank you. Thank you all very much. I know that our panelists want to have a bit of a barney with one another, but we're going to open it straight up. I think the plan is to uh, take two or three questions at a time. If you could make them short and sharp, and if you could just say who you are, please. Yeah, gentleman right there. Hi, I'm uh, Mark Kirsten from uh, the LSC. Uh, the do no harm principle seems to uh, suggest that we should have a consequentialist view that it's the consequences of, of the policies that, that tend to matter. Um, if, if you accept that that's true, how do you, um, how in a way do you react or how do you treat um, individuals and, um, and groups who advocate that it's really an issue of morality between us and other individuals um, by virtue of, of being human and then advocate things like the principles of um, neutrality and impartiality. Um, thanks. Uh, we've got two more. Uh, Gabby down here. Just, thanks. And then a gentleman in the middle and then we'll do it second round. Thank you. I would like to focus on um, a topic that has already been mentioned and that is the productive forces and the economy. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, the idea was that development aid would substitute for the capital scarcity that, that you find in developing countries. They simply don't have enough to invest into clinics, into roads, into railway systems, etc. This policy has been completely abandoned and the focus of development aid is somewhere else. Now, development is not even thinkable without a development of economic forces, and that means infrastructure, a lot of investment, a lot of things usually a state did, at least in the cases where development was successful in uh, countries which are nowadays industrialized. So that would mean a refocusing of what actually does development aid support? What, uh, is, it, is it for something that can be easily consumed or is it something uh, that's going to be there for 30 years? That refers also to, to the project horizon um, that was talked about. If, you, if, if a railway was built and a railway was maintained, for example, to create something like an internal market, it would be there for a long time. It would create a number of jobs. Uh, not only for the railway services, but to keep them up. What we find in Africa is the, the ruins of what colonialism has established, and nobody has cared for that any longer. I think that is another aspect of doing harm, or another idea of how to do it differently in the future. Just take one more. You've got the mic already. 
uh, Mark Pyman, Def uh, Transparency International Defense Team. Um, thanks, I really appreciated your book and the talks. Just some quick questions from what you said. Firstly, can you have too much money flowing into a post-conflict country? How do you judge? I'm thinking of Afghanistan. Secondly, your book talks about bad anti-corruption programs in conflict countries. It just has the odd example of a good one. I'd welcome your views on what makes a good one. Uh, third, you talked about donor strategies changing at a moment's notice. One of the solutions are sometimes used is multi-year funds, but it seems to me they don't have a good track record. I'd welcome your view. And finally, you talked about leaders talking to donors, not to people. Well, one of the big reasons is if I'm the citizen, I've no idea how much money is flowing into my district and the international community won't tell me. Of these four, this is one that's quickly soluble by the international community, and it's rather an open scandal, isn't it? Thank you. Thank you. I, I suppose all of you want to answer all of those questions. But... I, think we should, uh, I think we should let the lady start first. This ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, Thank you for this. I think I will just address myself to uh, a couple of questions. I mean, I, I think the point around infrastructure is well taken. I think this is precisely the point that even the, amongst the leaders, the, since the struggle has been within the elite system and the need to maintain uh, their positions, to entrench themselves in, in power, you have seen a systematic shift uh, from uh, a focus on infrastructure. We even saw in the 70s where some, some of the uh, military regimes uh, spent a huge uh, uh, sums on you know, prestigious projects. They so were building bridges, uh, at least building roads and so on. For all sorts of, uh, even as part of uh, the process of, uh, of seeking legitimacy. That hardly, even hap that hardly happens uh, anymore. And I think this is where some of the pressure uh, from the international community should begin to go. No doubt in the fragile context in particular that <coughs> we're talking about, that security for all sorts of reasons, not least the humanitarian tragedies that we've seen, then becomes uh, the focus of, uh, uh, of the entire community. Uh, and I think that there should be a way to begin to, to balance that out. But in this sense, who should be responsible for infrastructure? What, what responsibility does a government have uh, in that environment? if it cannot uh, be responsible for very simple uh, but necessary uh, 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 assignments, so, such as ensuring that uh, there are good roads uh, or that you, have, you begin to develop even a mild ra rail system, whether China would make a difference in this regard, uh, the, <laughs> the, the, that, you know, the, the jury is out on that, but the point is well taken. There was also uh, a question about Oh yeah, the question here about uh, donor strategies, uh, long-term funding, we, we've seen uh, in Sierra Leone. That has helped a great deal in Sierra Leone. It's one of the few times that we have seen the UK, uh, where, where we've seen a donor, and in this case, the UK government, making a 10-year commitment uh, to Sierra Leone. But even that, uh, I think, changed very quickly, but thankfully towards the end of that 10-year commitment with the global financial crisis. Uh, well, uh, there are times that you have to understand that there's force majeure that uh, creates uh, the, that, that kind of change. Uh, but, but I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the donor community, but led, led by the, uh, uh, the Department for International Development, began to make the argument last year 
was it last year March when the uh, the the white paper was uh, was being discussed that we should not let the panic created by the uh, global financial crisis uh, begin to make us undo some of the good work that has been done on the ground in those areas. But I think thinking long term is certainly what uh, what is needed. Although those uh, strategic dilemmas continue uh, to to disrupt the process. Now, leaders talking to, to donors and, and, and not to people. I think the point you're trying to make is that it's on both sides. Eh? Uh, it's on the side, you see that on the side of the donors, but uh, certainly uh, it's a major challenge on, uh, in fragile contexts where donors do not, where, where leaders do not even feel any sense of accountability uh, to the people. I'm not sure that um, I have more to add to that. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm. I'm not sure if I, if I would accept the point of departure that you have to either uh, think about moral obligations or about consequences of your actions. I, I, in my simple mind, you need to do both. I mean, even if you assist out of a moral obligation and even if you have some absolute, I mean, still you're concerned about the consequences of your action and you want, you want, to, you want to do no harm. So I, I, I don't quite follow the, the logic of that, uh, of that uh, dichotomy. Um, infrastructure versus uh, other areas, again, no easy answers. I mean, investment in human capital is also investment in capital. Investment in the training of people in order to be good fishermen and good far and good farmers are also important for uh, for economic development. So I I think it's a slightly too simplistic uh, idea that you have to either uh, either build roads or uh, or support education. I think what what many people would see that if you look at the overall investments uh, in Africa over the past decade. The shift from uh, economic sectors to social sectors was probably too big, and there is a I think there is a re, there is an element of readdressing of of that through different mechanisms. Uh, given that in many in most countries, of course, uh, aid is only one part of the financing. Sort of to what extent then uh, that takes the form of aid shifting from education to uh, roads. Or uh, donors continuing to support education while the government uses an increasing share of its own resources to finance. That sort of that's more on the on the overall allocation. But I, I think there 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 is a uh, there is a, a shift of resources towards economic infrastructure. But but I would also like to underline that investment in human capital is also important for economic development. Uh, can you have too much money? Oh yes. Of course, you can have too much money. I mean, if uh, in in, situ in situations where there is very limited capacity to implement on the ground, clearly, if you uh, inject too much money into that, you can do a lot of harm, uh, including, of course, increasing the price of the price of competence by making making that a, a scarce. So, so clearly, sort of dimensioning resource flows into societies with, with weak institutions, both government institutions and, and civil society institutions. And, and unfortunately, my experience is that, that it, it's sort of very rare that you have a situation where you have a very weak government and a very solid and strong civil society. Very frequently, you'll find that both, both are weak. 
And in fact, if you go around the agencies, the bilateral agencies that are members of OECD, <coughs> it's very hard to find somebody, an agricultural economist anymore, or somebody who understands um, you know, manufacturing processes, etc. And I think that is a problem. So, so um, you, you acknowledge the shift was perhaps too far. Uh, I, I think that there, you know, that this is really an, an important issue for a new reflection inside OECD and, and new research. Um, the, the, a positive anti-corruption campaign we talk about in the book is, um, or, or briefly anyway, and it's further in one of our case studies, is in Rwanda, for instance. Rwanda has achieved quite significant, um, very impressive record, actually, in relationship to fighting corruption, but it's not necessarily by the means that Transparency International would, you know, often, you know, see as a model, and I think that that issue of corruption needs to be situated in ver very context-specific um, to understand uh, what may work and what may not. And I and I suppose one of the problems in the anti-corruption discourse um, of recent in the good governance agenda has been that uh, very very often it's a it, it's a it's an issue of 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 broad and blanket concern. Um, and so um, one, one needs to look at it, I think, in a more discerning uh, strategic way. When, when will it move things forward or when will it do little more than contribute to people's disaffection with public authority? Um, uh, so I, I, I think, I think tho those are the things that are um, uh, some of the things that um, uh, need to shift in the discourse of the donor community. Anyway, let me go back to the audience. Yeah, well, we'll come right down the front and then over. Yeah, please. <coughs> Jack. Yeah. Short and sharp and then short and sharp answers as well. Right, right in the middle yeah. of the front. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's Sophie. I'm on the Development Management Programme here at Destin. And I had two short questions actually related to some things that we've learned on our programme, which Stuart will be pleased to know. <laughs> um, one is that I had the chance to do a consultancy project with PricewaterhouseCoopers relating to their security and justice um, policy making. And we went to interview somebody at the stabilization unit here at DFID. And he was a very frank, straight-talking kind of guy who was originally from the Ministry of Defense. And he said, recognizing the need for foreign affairs development and um, defense to work more closely together, one of the major challenges that he's had is institutional um, commitment and loyalty, and that he gave quite a funny um, way of framing it, that if you were in DFID, you want to hug everybody and sit on the fence. If you're in defense, you want to go out there and shoot people and get things done. And if you're in the foreign affairs, you want to talk about things. So <laughs> um, I just wondered if you could comment on that, those challenges and how you get around them since the stabilization unit is trying to do that um, and still finding it difficult. And my second question was about humanitarian aid. Another of the problems we've learned in our courses this year is the difficulty of working in the context of a fragile state. Um, that it's not necessarily clear where the humanitarian aid ends and development aid begins. And I know that's, there's a lot of authors raising this concern. And um, it seems that the development institutions have not readjusted to that when humanitarian aid is obviously seen as a lot less accountable. The structures which really um, scrutinize the long-term planning are much weaker. So I just wonder if you could comment on those challenges. Thank you. Great. Yeah. You already got the mic. 
Yeah, um, my name's Tim Kello. I'm an independent consultant and I've just been doing some work assessing uh, women's participation in politics in West Africa. Um, and I was just responding to, to a point that Funmi made last about the, the, the massive gap between the largely elite uh, state uh, individuals who uh, um, in, in uh, charge in many fragile states and the people who, who they should be um, accountable to. And really sort of it's about the way the international community have tried to, to bridge this gap has, uh, has varied from trying to, to, to decentralize government structures to introduce uh, uh, local government, local elections as, as in Sierra Leone, uh, but also to try and engage um, national NGOs um, in doing this. But it, I just wondered what, what Fumi really thinks about these, these two approaches, which, which surely do make sense, but the actual problems that, that have, uh, have been encountered in, in trying them out. For instance, in decentralization processes, lack of engagement with traditional chieftaincy structures, um, and in uh, engaging with national NGOs, largely focusing on one or two highly visible na uh, national NGOs based in the capitals and not really on smaller uh, community-based organizations. So um, if you just comment on that, please. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you there. Next scarf on. Then we'll take one more in this round, I think, and see where we get to. Sorry, it's a very quick question. Um, I'm Fiona Campbell from Merlin. It's a, an NGO working in fragile situations. And I just wanted to say, we're talking about donors here, but uh, obviously international NGOs are also major actors in, in these situations. And uh, whether or not you had a comment about how they can do no harm in these situations also. Good. I'm Joe Hanlon from, I'm in the Crisis States Research Center, but I'm also the author of an open university textbook called Civil War, Civil Peace which raised a number of these issues some years ago. And I want to look at the economic side, but at a lower level, because the thing that people after a war want most is to become productive quickly. And any kind of work, any way of earning money, any way of selling things, and the thing that we see repeatedly with fragile state interventions trying to create state structures is they don't worry about people getting fertilizer or seeds or building roads. It's all about big projects. Bring in a contractor who will build the infrastructure rather than hire thousands of people to build a road by hand. And it, I, I don't know how you get around this problem, but getting money into rural areas that would create markets, cash transfers of some sort, labor-intensive methods to do road-building infrastructure, getting fertilizer and getting seeds in, these very simple things seem to be totally beyond the ability of the donor community to do. And yet, it's what people really want on the ground. Is anybody else burning to ask a question? Yeah, OK, you, that's quick. Uh, I think they'll have to be it because you've got a lot of notes to take. Thanks. Uh, Aidan with the Department for Transport. I was wondering, is there maybe a tension in your title, um, do no harm and support for states or state building? Um, is there a potential for harm in a prior commitment to um, the existing political geography and in a lot of cases a source of conflict tension itself? Um, there's arbitrary and kind of anachronistic borders and um, does it ne necessitate taking sides and suppression in itself? Uh, 
landowners only do uh, big uh, infrastructure projects or can we do um, uh, bring inputs to small-scale farmers and uh, manage rural work projects and uh, cash delivery yes we can but but of course uh, uh, projects that large-scale projects that requires you to reach out to a large number of small recipients are challenging uh, and requires a managerial capacity that frequently is not there so so that 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 the, in in a fragile situation so that sort of looking for can can you find that in, in a country like Bangladesh it hasn't been difficult I mean you've got the brucks you've got the green banks and it's very very easy to challenge uh, money to small-scale producers uh, either as small grants or as credits uh, it is frequently more challenging in uh, in post-conflict and fragile countries because the structures are not there that's not to run away from the fact that you I I, I don't disagree with you in any way that uh, if you've got to get rural production going, that's uh, you. You need to you need to do that. And I think if you look at experience, you also see that there are a lot of those things going on, but frequently at a fairly small scale, because you don't have actors, you don't have a government uh, with an apparatus to do it on a large scale, and you don't have other actors either who with a capacity to do it on a large scale. That's, so if you have if you have good advice on how to, to sort of bridge that capacity gap, then I think many donors would be extremely happy to uh, to uh, to listen to uh, to listen to them. Um, I, I just wanted to revert also quickly back to to this sort of this this social and productive sectors, and I think to me that we should also keep in mind that. Aid to productive sectors is also a do no harm area, and if you look at the history of aid to productive sectors, you'd find a lot of harm done, because because grants to grants to production is a is a difficult uh, art to manage, uh, and there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of failures. So again, uh, apart from the obvious, which is sort of uh, policy uh, environment and infrastructure. Uh, then there is also a there is a need to I think further develop the toolkit that enables us to to use aid as a constructive uh, instrument in order to support uh, to support production. Um, thank you. I think I'll take this a couple of questions together. There's a role of international. Uh, non-governmental organizations or indeed maybe even national ones. Uh, women's participation, uh, the whole issue of decentralization, and maybe even indeed um, extending production to rural areas. I think for me the, the litmus test really is, has real structural change taken place? And what will be the evidence of that? It will be in things like what the Constitution has reformed uh, to give, to make available to ordinary people, uh, whether it's in terms of law reform, uh, entitlement to land, and so on. Otherwise, where you have seen decentralization like that, and I'm a bit familiar with the Sierra Leone uh, case, I fear that what has happened in many cases is that you've seen an, ex an expansion of the elite 
<laughs> right down to the local level. Because if real decision making does not happen at that local level, to, to the extent that people have a sense of their own destiny in their hands, we're just on the security level. I mean, it extended to provincial, you know, areas and districts and so on. It is skin deep, because until there's the kind of reform that acknowledges that you have equal rights to own land that allows you to do that kind of uh, rural production, that allows you to make decisions within that context. You have a federal uh, system in Nigeria where even if I want to register a company, I have to go to the federal capital territory. If I want to register an NGO, I have to, to do everything in Abuja. Yet, you have a fairly decentralized system on paper, right down to local government uh, level. I, I think that, 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 that for me is a big issue. If we go back to the factors of production, is, is whether it's land, labor, or capital, that investment in people with the capacity for, to, to enable them to be able to do things, but the land issue is a big issue in many of these environments. And access to the right kind of capital to be able to generate the multiplier effect to make that change happen. And I have nothing against the whole idea of expanding elite base, really. But it, it has to be real. So you expand it, but you also give access on the ground. It's the only thing that can attract people from the small uh, towns, if you like, right down to the rural areas to begin to do uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, production in the rural area that spreads around. Otherwise, what you find is basic subsistence farming, for example. And it's true about the limited capacity. We cannot upscale anything that goes on without that kind of structural change. I'm sorry, did I, uh, in the case of NGOs, I have just uh, I've put everybody in the same category. This is another layer of elite system uh, that goes on. And that is why the ambition of many people in those environments is to quickly look for an NGO to join uh, in order to at least begin to be uh, part of the pack. So. Uh, sorry, I, I forgot the, um, the, the talk, hug, shoot uh, ah, yeah. di di <laughs> dilemma that, um, that uh, Sophie pointed you. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I mean that's, uh, we come from very different backgrounds. Uh, I myself earlier crossed, crossed the border between, uh, between uh, development and, diplo and diplomacy. And, but uh, that's, that's a border. Uh, clearly, the border uh, to defense is much, much, uh, the, the borderline is much, much, the border is much, much higher. Uh, uh, we, we have different languages, we have different concepts, concepts we have different approaches uh, to different understanding of the same reality. And, and it is only through a slow, tedious process of working together, dealing, trying to mm, explore the, the landscape, the same context, trying to understand each other's uh, point of departure perspective, that you can slowly develop a, a, a common understanding that, that is needed. Uh, I think actually UK is one of the better examples of doing that, of actually managing to, to get that conversation going and moving. But uh, we actually discussed this with Diffit uh, earlier today and, and proposed that they should organize a training session for some other OECD members who have less experience in, in, uh, in, uh, in, managing, uh, in managing that conversation. James, you get the last word. Okay, thank you very much. I, I think this is a, a wonderful way to characterize Whitehall as the shooters, the huggers, and the talkers. So, um, 
there's there's been a long tension in the humanitarian development um, uh, assistance um, long knowledge about the problem of the shift from humanitarian aid to development but still difficulties in in, 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 in getting to the solutions one kind of critical point of view on that is that there's a lot of work has been done over the years and it seems to be lost by each group. This is another problem in the donor community about the turnover and how much certain discourses are are, 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 are forgotten or reports that are written are, are put on the shelf. I mean it's better when they're published because there's some chance somebody might, might, might then rediscover them. Um, I would say that uh, in terms of the international NGOs, the, the, the propensity to, or the danger of doing harm is every much as big as the official donors and in some cases more, some cases worse. Uh, we talk a little bit in the report and in the case study more about uh, the experience of, of Rwanda throwing out the whole international NGO community and only having them back in on certain grounds. And it's very interesting to look at that experience, whether you think it was too harsh or, or, or not or for whatever motives were behind it. Because I think there is a question about taking possession of one's own development strategy uh, domestically. Um, and then there's a question of pressure and supporting those from below and civil society, et cetera, to contribute. Um, but a lot of what we're saying, I think, about the potential to do harm is not only official government development aid, but also international NGOs. Finally, back on this, you know, the, 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 this big question about what's the balance really uh, between wh wh where, where aid should be directed. And I, th I think um, it's absolutely true that there's a potential and there was plenty of experience of doing harm in terms of investments in, in, in production in the past. But uh, in the end, development is about wealth creation. And um, uh, it's about, in many countries we're dealing with agriculture and land and understanding not only you know, social relations on land, but also productive capacity. The point, I think, is that the discourse about this, the attention to it, the knowledge about it within the donor aid community now is, is dangerously and precariously um, reduced. And so, um, I, and, and I do think it's very fundamental for the future. In the face of the food crisis that we saw in recent years, you know, the knowledge about this and being able to shift programs in meaningful ways into expanding the productive capacity of poor people. Mm -hmm. That means thinking again about wealth creation in the South and not just welfare for the South. So uh, I'll finish on that note. Thank you very much. <laughs>